And this morning's sermon is in three parts. It was in two weeks ago's part. Part one was two weeks ago. Part two was last week. And uh, part three is this morning. And actually, there might be a part four, but that'll be next week. Um, But we are looking at this is kind of the tail end of our series on the glory of God. And we looked at the glory of God through Exodus, um, kind of through most of January. We looked at the glory of God in Exodus and um, we saw um, we saw God's glory descend on this house, this tent that God had commanded to Moses to make for Israel. We saw this, the tabernacle several weeks ago. Um, and then at the very end of Exodus, right at the com- end of the completion and the putting together of this tabernacle, it says the glory of the Lord descended on it in a cloud. And God had promised his presence. You remember uh, he would be with his people. He says, I am your God. You will be my people. I will dwell in your midst. The very beginning in Exodus chapter 25, verse eight says, I want you to build me a tent so that I could dwell within you. And so they build this tent. And then um, we saw the golden calf incident where the Israelites broke this covenant already. While Moses is up on the mountain, Aaron makes this golden calf for them to worship. And uh, God, at the end of that little episode in Exodus chapter 32, 33 and 34, he tells Moses, go ahead and take this people. Go to the land that I had promised you, but I'm not going. My presence won't won't come with you. And Moses begs and pleads and he and he says, no, we, we are not a people unless you go with us. And so the Lord ends up agreeing to go with and his presence was such an important thing. They continued building that and his presence descends on that cloud. Descends in the cloud onto that tabernacle in the midst of his people. And so we look a little bit at this this imagery of the tabernacle temple going all through scripture. And so here are let's kind of review a little bit. Here's the the tabernacle, the tent. If you weren't here the last couple of weeks, this was the tent that um, God had given the blueprints of to Moses while Moses was on the mountain on Mount Sinai. Kind of a, you know, not not a super impressive structure in terms of size. Um, But here is the the holy place. This is the high priest. People would bring their sacrifices and offerings and they would take it into this holy place. And here is the Ark of the Covenant where the tablets of this covenant that God made with Israel were kept. And all of this was lined with gold on the inside. This represented several things. It represented God's presence among his people. It represented God's uh, holiness of the people. And then it also represented uh, represented God to the nations around them. You know, what what nation um, has a God so near them as the Lord God is near them? What what nation is what nation can can pray in such a way that their God can hear them? God was there. So it represented God's presence, it represented holiness, and it represented mission in a way. This was to be a light to the nations. Israel was to be a light to the nations for how they should live before a holy God. And so that that tabernacle, this is kind of the whole courtyard around it. It ends up becoming a, a permanent structure in Jerusalem 
Uh, Solomon builds it. This is Solomon's temple. Gets a little bit larger and expands. They have rooms and um, things on the side. And it comes like another permanent location where God's people were to come. And that the nations of the world were to kind of see this is where God was present among his people. Right? And eventually, uh, this, this gets destroyed through the Babylonian exile. And when they return, they come back to the land. It ends up getting rebuilt again. And by the time we get to the days of Jesus, this is what it looks like. Massive, amazing structure. By the work of, of Herod. Quite the fundraiser. And so it have these different courtyards. Here's the, the court of the women. The men could come in here. Um, only Jews were allowed inside of this fence area here. This is the court of the Gentiles all around it. This is the place, it's in this outside place that Jesus comes and he sees the money changers and he turns over their tables and he makes a whip and he drives the sheep and the oxen out. He says, this is, this is a house of prayer for all nations. Again, see that missional, the missional idea. This was to, for the other nations to come and to see God. And, but you've turned it into a, a den of thieves with all the merchandise and selling and stuff that was happening around there. And then we saw last week that they came, the religious leaders came to Jesus and they said, um, what gives you the authority to do this sort of thing? Show us a sign that tells us that you are qualified to go and disrupt everything that's going on. And Jesus said, uh, if you want a sign, I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple in three days and I will rebuild it again. And they mock him, but John writes in there in the gospel, John chapter two, I think verse 18, uh, 18 or 19. And he says, um, but they didn't realize that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the true temple in the meeting place between God and man. Well, the rest of the New Testament actually takes this idea, the imagery of temple another step further. And it applies this not just to Jesus, but to a people and to us. And so I want to look at four passages this morning that take this temple, this tabernacle temple imagery and shows how it applies to you. To all who are in here in this room right now who have placed your faith in Christ and claimed your need of him and he is your savior and that you have trusted him and that he has given you new life and have raised you to new life and has put his spirit within you individually. He's also done something through these pictures. He wants to do something else through you. And so we're going to look at that today. First passage, John chapter, excuse me, first Corinthians chapter three. My, my synapses are clogged. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in um, verse, um, by the way, oh, here, let's back up some model. You want to see some model pictures of these? Um, Ross and Terry probably, did you see these when you were in Israel? Yeah. At this location, it's a scale model of all of Jerusalem. Um, and I think it looks so cool. I thought you just might want to see this. So that's the, the Herod's temple in that day, what it would have looked like. Pretty magnificent um, structure. And so as we get to these verses, these four passages we're going to, uh, I want you to just kind of have this in mind, okay? 
Get this picture in your mind. And uh, sometimes if I blink and I'm looking at something, that picture stays in my mind. You know, it's like your eyes take a snapshot. You guys want to take a moment, blink, and look at it. Okay, capture that image. So here's the first passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is talking about uh, the church. And uh, this is a church in Corinth, the city of Corinth, a major Greek city. It wasn't very far from Athens, the major hub of philosophy and um, Greek culture. Uh, Corinth was kind of like the second city. So like Corinth was like Chicago to Athens's New York. And so um, Paul is writing to this church that he had planted there. And he says these words. He just described God's people, this uh, group of believers in Corinth, as a field. Uses a metaphor of a field. And then he switches metaphor here in verse 9. For we are God's uh, fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. Okay. We're God's building. He wants to go. He's taking this somewhere. He says, according to the grace given to me. Like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation. This is in reference to him first coming to the city and sharing the gospel in Corinth. And someone else is building upon it. So Paul moves on and there's the the other people in the church, the leaders in the church who are teaching. And let each one take care on how he builds it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, hay, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. He's talking about the building up of this building, God's building, that is this particular church in this city. Okay. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Here's the part I want us to focus on. He says to them, do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. This is in reference to kind of the divisions that were happening in the church. And he wants to remind them of what their purpose and function was as a church. And he uses this picture and this metaphor. He goes, don't you realize you are God's temple? The you, this is where we sometimes lose in English. um, The first or second person um, singular we would refer to as you, like the pronoun you. Um, and before you using it for second person plural, it's also the word you, unless you're in the South and they have y'all, which is actually more accurate. I think, I think we should be using y'all more because how do you know whether it's you singular, you plural here in Greek, you can tell the difference between you singular and you plural. And here he's saying you plural. So meaning all of you are God's temple singular. Now, later he goes on in chapter six, he says, don't you know that each one of your bodies is a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. So that's true. Our individual bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But here in chapter three, three chapters earlier, he says, all of you are the temple. Got that image in your mind? You blinking? The temple 
being the holy place of God, where God's presence dwells, he says that's true of you. Have you thought about that? When we come together here on a Sunday morning, God's presence is here. That should, that should change a little bit if you have that perspective when you're getting dressed in the morning, right? But wait a second. I'm going, and when I gather together with God's people, his presence is there. He goes on, verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. And then he says it again. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So that's the first passage. Second passage, Paul writes back to this church later in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you would turn with me there. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says uh, this in verse 14. In this particular section of scripture, he's talking about... um, Getting into intimate partnerships with somebody uh, between believers and unbelievers. And in particular, he's focusing on the issue of of marriage. He gets into marriage um, uh, in his first book. He speaks about marriage, uh, uh, first letter to them. But here he he says these words. Verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I was sharing this with another friend uh, who, um, you know, had, had gone to church, grew up in a kind of Catholic church, and uh, he'd heard this phrase before, and he always thought yoke like is an egg yolk, and he didn't get it. He totally didn't get it. And we, most of us wouldn't get it, but it's yoke, Y-O-K-E-D, and that is referring to like uh, the, the harness that would be over the top of two oxen that would pull a plow, right? So you want to, don't be unequally yoked means... Don't don't be getting into an arrangement where you're doing all of the the load, carrying the load here. Right. And here it's in particular about marriage. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So believer, unbeliever, that that shouldn't happen. And he continues. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Nothing. Right. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Notice the contrast. What accord has Christ with Belial? This is a um, it's the only word. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament here. Uh, but in the Jewish literature, that's the uh, uh, a replacement word for Satan. So what um, what accord does Christ have with Satan, basically? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And then notice where he goes here. Notice the contrast. And he, he kind of goes to this contrast. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, he says. He comes back to this. He says, we, we believers are the temple of the living God. And then he goes on to say this. He says, as God said, and then this, don't, don't go looking in the Old Testament for this quote that he has here because it's, it's literally like allusions to a dozen different passages. It's just like one big composite here. But let me read it. Um, Because this is the emphasis that he wants to make with them about what this means to be the temple. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. 
and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. Could be the word gathered to. Then I will welcome you or I will gather you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Paul ends, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So again, back to verse 16, what agreement has the temple with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Here now the emphasis in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it was, don't you know that you're the, the temple of the living God and God's spirit dwells in you? The emphasis of the temple as being the presence of God. Here, the emphasis is the, the holiness of the temple because of the presence of God. So let's cleanse ourselves from defilement. Bringing holiness to completion. That's what should be happening in the church. But he connects the church with the temple. Got that image? Did you blink? So that's the second passage. Here's the third passage. Ephesians chapter 2. Two books to the right. And the main verses are at the end of this section, but I want to read from verse 11 because this is just magnificent and it's glorious. And I was rereading this yesterday in preparation for today, and I'm just blown away by this. And I'll read in verse 11. Many of us know uh, verses like 8 and 9 for you've been saved by grace through faith. But notice how he continues on in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh... Okay, keep that in mind, by the way. We'll get into this later. But the Gentiles, he's writing to a church in Ephesus. This is mostly Gentiles here in this church. Called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Pause there, by the way. You saw that that fence I told you about around the temple area that separated where the Jews could go in and the Gentiles couldn't. Um, many believe that this wall of separation that Paul is writing about here refers to that thing, the Sorek, that wall that's around there. He says that, don't you understand when Christ, we've, he, God's making one person, one new humanity, one new person here. And so this distinction of walls of separation between a Gentile, Jew and Gentile are gone. So that wall of separation. The wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached to you who were far off and peace to those who are near for through him that is through Christ. We have we both have access in one spirit to the father. And then so he now says this to them in light of everything that he's just said of the work of Christ creating one one new humanity. He says this about these Gentile Christians at this church in Ephesus. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then he does this again. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. So picture that image of that temple where God's people would come and they would come to offer their sacrifices in worship. But through Christ, now he's abolished that whole thing. We are all able to come to the throne of grace directly. And what he says is, by the way, that temple that I told you all along was just a model. It was just a copy. It was just a replica of what's in heaven. The new reality, the new temple that exists in the world is you. You, a people. You're being built up. And as the tabernacle started as this tent and then became a permanent structure and then it continued to grow and expand. He's saying this is going to continue to grow and expand, but it's not going to be brick and mortar. It's going to be flesh and blood. It's going to be you, the Holy Spirit dwelling in all of you. Amazing. Chicken skin. Should be giving you chicken skins, giving me chicken skin. That's goosebumps for those of you who don't know my, my native tongue. Last passage. One more passage. Second Peter chapter four. Excuse me. First Peter chapter two. The synapses are not are clogged. First Peter chapter two. This is the last one. <clears throat> and then we'll wrap. Up our time. Lest we think this is just Paul doing this, by the way. Okay? All those passages were Paul. Um, what do what some of the other writers say? Like Peter. Well, does Peter use this metaphor? Yes, Peter uses this metaphor. Notice what it says here, beginning in verse uh, 4. Um, as you come to him, this is obviously reference to, to Christ the Lord. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, Paul earlier in the previous passage referred to Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. The first big, massive stone block that would be laid. I'll show you a picture of that some other time. He says that that's actually Jesus is kind of that that stone. Um, and so he's the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And then notice he says in verse five, you yourselves are like living stones, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. You are being built up to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do we need to come to that temple again? Offer blood again? No. Because that, that sacrifice, the perfection of all of the sacrifices has been accomplished through Christ. But we come and now we offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. Verse 6, for it stands in scripture, behold, I lay, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, quote, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. He's referring to the religious leaders uh, in Jesus' day who just did not believe Jesus and who he said he was. He says they stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But then he says these words. Peter's writing to a church. It has... Uh, likely has Jewish believers in it and it has Gentile believers in it. And notice this language. And if you were here earlier in the series in Exodus, you will see some things that should strike you as familiar. Verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Whoa, that's some serious. That's some serious lumber. Right there to use the these are all uh, phrases drawn from Exodus and Deuteronomy and the prophets that refer to what God has done in calling Israel. And he says, this is now the church. This is believers, Jews and Gentiles. You are a holy nation. You're a priesthood of believers. And then notice the purpose. You're you're a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have received mercy, but now uh, you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. So he applies this to this people. The people of God. But then earlier he says that that people of God is a spiritual house. He's taking that temple language and he says it's no longer brick and mortar. It's flesh and blood. It's you guys. The spirit of God dwells within you. God's presence is in you. God's presence is here when we gather together. But God's presence is also here when we are when we are uh, his people scattered into the world. Have you ever thought of yourself that way? Have you ever thought of looking at that tabernacle or that temple that was supposed to be kind of a light to the nations so that God could show the world what he was like and to make himself known in the world? That's you. We as a church are God's presence in the world. And because we are God's presence in the world, we kind of we represent God to the world. The gospel is found through us as a people. Both in in our words and in our actions. Both in what we proclaim, the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into light, but also through our lives, the holiness of our lives. You're the temple. You're the tabernacle. We're the people of God on the move in this world. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to flesh out what this means for us, both personally 
in terms of our own personal lives of holiness? Do our, do, do our personal lives match up uh, to what the calling that God has for us as a portable dwelling place of God in the world? But also in terms, not just of holiness, but also in our mission. How do we go and represent God in the world? We're going to look at that in, in the coming weeks. But this morning, I want us to realize, I want us all to realize, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that God's spirit dwells within you? Let's, let's close in a word of prayer and then we're going to go to the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we've heard your word and we hear what you are calling us to and what you are challenging us with as your people. God, we thank you for this picture and this image that we're, we're so far away from the world of, of temples and, and idols and we're so uh, removed from the Old Testament world of a tabernacle and the temple that even existed up into Jesus' day. But thank you, God, that you've given us this picture of your presence, of your holiness and the holiness of your people, but also of our mission to proclaim you to be a light to the nations around us. God, we don't do this on our own strength. We do this because you dwell within us both in our individual bodies, but also in our body, in all of us. God, we thank you for that amazing truth. Awaken us, God, to our mission that you call us to. Keep this, this image in our minds, God, of this temple, of your dwelling here among us. And may that change how we live and how we see our mission in the world. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, Amen.